0: Recorded live. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Pastor Eli James here along with William Fink with another installation of Yahweh's Covenant People. This is part two of our series on the book of Revelation. Part one was all introduction where Bill and I talked about the, uh, the symbolic language of the numerous words in the book of Revelation. We talked about the historicity. Of this book and the fact that John the Apostle was in fact the author of the book, and uh, I have a little more information along those lines today. And uh, but before I do that, I want to read from this really crazy because we just were talking about the Catholic Church before we went on the air. But before I do that, do you have any uh, anything you want to add to last last Saturday's introduction, Bill?
1: Well, well, not really. I don't. You know the the. I have two declarations:
0: um, Nietzsche
1: is dead, and God is living. Yeah, um, and Futurism yeah. is dead, right? Yeah, and pretty soon we're going to see that Futurism is also dead. Yes, and, and the only proper, um, that the only feasible method by which to interpret the revelation is the historicist method.
0: That's right. That's right. Okay, and then also I'm going to be quoting a couple of times from Joseph Seiss, who wrote a book in uh, the year 1900 called The Apocalypse an exposition of the book of Revelation, and it's really outstanding stuff, given the era that he wrote in, uh, really uh, a thorough, uh, detailed analysis of the book of Revelation, and agrees with us uh, quite often, which is very encouraging. But first, uh, I'm going to be quoting from an article at World News and Prophecy Online, and uh, this was actually published in November of 2005. The title of the article is Parts of the Bible Rejected by the Roman Catholic Church in Britain. And I'm just going to scroll down here to the comment of, of the author, or one of the authors here. Although clearly sympathetic to the Catholic point of view, Ruth Gledhill, religion correspondent of the Times of London, summed up the overall effect of this report by the Roman Catholic Church, quote, the hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church in Britain has published a teaching document instructing the faithful that some parts of the Bible are not actually true. Okay. One telling quotation from the document itself titled The Gift of Scripture is very revealing. Quote, we should not expect to find in Scripture full scientific accuracy or complete historical precision. Well, you know, depending on what you think, scientific accuracy amounts to. Obviously, the Bible is not a scientific book. The few statements that made in it that could be construed as scientific, I would say, are accurate. But this uh, la- latter half, complete historical position, that's an absolute lie. The Bible is, by far, the most accurate, most precise history book ever written. Simply no doubt about that. And any Catholic who thinks otherwise is just fooling himself. Okay. Well, well,
1: these are theologians who want to make excuses. They're, they're political theologians mm. who want to make excuses for, first, the bad things that the Bible says about certain people. Right. <laughs> and and <laughs> second, right. for their own lack of understanding concerning most of the
0: book. That's right. And they do like And they certainly don't understand the book of Revelation at all. And I would have to say, just going into it, that outside of Christian identity, there's virtually no understanding of the book of Revelation because they they simply ignore all of the symbolism that uh, obtains and and pertains from the Old Testament, okay, and they fail to apply it to the book of Revelation. When, uh, when once you start doing that, then you have a, a, an already you know uh, good grasp of what's going on. Continue. Well, I don't care how
1: eloquently you do it; scoffing is still scoffing,
0: right? Oh yeah, and, and people
1: have have a tendency to scoff at things that they don't know mm-hmm. that's even spoken about in in, in scripture mm-hmm. why do you stop and and, and mock at that what that which you don't know or, or you condemn that which you don't know right and, and people stop people who don't know history stop at history oh what do we need history
0: for well well if you knew any of it you might understand yes. what we need it for
1: yeah and and it's the same thing with scripture
0: yes yes what well, would it cost today to say that if you don't understand The past, it'll come back and bite you in the ass, right? (laughs) That's a a paraphrase. Continuing with the article, parts of the book of Revelation are viewed quite differently than a Bible student would understand them from a normal reading of this final book of Scripture. Even taking the clearly identified symbolic portions into account, the booklet says we should not expect to discover in this book, talking about the book of Revelation, of course, we should not expect to discover in this book details about the end of the world. Are you kidding me? If the book of Revelation is not about the end of the world, then it's not about anything. Well, well, it certainly culminates with the end of the age. Yeah, and it's numerous. This this
1: world, meaning this society as we know it.
0: Yes, and there's numerous references to the end times and the Judgment Day, absolutely numerous references. Continuing here, it is here that Catholic... Hierarchy embarks on some very dangerous ground, and I agree with the author here. The closing passages of Revelation itself should be very instructive to everyone who reads and seeks to truly understand this biblical book. Quote, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. Quoting, Revelation 22:18 and 19, and the author concludes here sobering words indeed. So, uh, folks, the the denominational world of Judeo Christianity is just Antichrist. They're part and parcel of the Antichrist movement. Of course, they take a lot of their cues from the Jews, which are even bigger Antichrists. But the the combination of Judaism and Judeo Christianity put together. Are really the false prophets of the Book of Revelation. All they do is teach lies about Scripture. Well, well,
1: Judeo-Christianity is the destruction of true Christianity, which is the antithesis to Judaism. That's right.
0: That's right. So the two of them are duking it out. Uh, You know, actually they're being manipulated, but from you know the common source. But they claim to be duking it out uh, with uh, their own sets of false doctrine, right? And neither one has any clue of what the Bible is really saying, because number one both agree that uh, the Jews are the Old Testament Judahites, and of course they are not. We are. We Anglo-Saxon, Celtic, and Caucasians are the true Israelites of the Bible. And if you don't understand that, you can't understand a word, a word of not only Revelation, but the entire Bible. Okay? So uh, that, that's the rule number one. You have to know that. So here I'm going to quote now from the introduction to the book of Revelation from my King James Bible. And uh, this is like four or five paragraphs, so you know, feel free to interject at this point, though. The key to this book is found in the opening verse, quote, the revelation of Jesus Christ, unquote. The main purpose is to reveal the person of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Redeemer of the world, of course. there is the, Well, that's the first lie right there. Right, there's a the lie, because he didn't come to redeem the world. He came to redeem Israel. That's clearly what the Bible says. And as the conqueror of evil, that's good. And to present in symbolic form the program by which he will carry out his work. Very good. The structure of Revelation is built on four great visions, each of which contains one aspect of the person of Christ in his capacity as the judge of the world. Each is laid in a different scene, and each advances the thought of the book one step. Now, I haven't noticed that four great visions, have you? Is this, uh, is this something, uh, I don't know if he well, he well,
1: there's several stages there's several different visions in the revelation. it's mm. a series of visions. It's not one vision and and for instance, we have one vision from chapters one through three, and then we have a new vision start in chapter four. I think I could argue that it's more than four visions though yeah
0: it's definitely more than four visions. No doubt about it. yes, continuing revelation begins with the letters addressed by the Lord to seven actual churches of the apostolic age, which were typical of the churches of all time. Uh, Well, I wouldn't say they're typical of all churches. (laughs) Uh, In them, he voices his commendation and criticism, concluding with a warning and a promise. So so that's a very good uh, commentary there. It is, in, in fact, addressed to these seven churches, at least the beginning of it is. Beginning with the fourth chapter, the seer is transferred to heaven and beholds things which must be hereafter. Through a succession of judgments, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, the earth is punished for its sin, and the great day of God's wrath is ushered in. No indication is given of the length of the process, though it seems to accelerate toward the end. So at least this uh, commentator is not an antinomian saying that we're all saved in spite of everything. In the 17th chapter through the 20th, we are given a detailed view of the consummation of the age, the return of Christ in glory with armies of heaven, the establishment of the kingdom and its conclusion in the final judgment of the white throne and the creation of a new world, all are depicted. The last vision continues the third by describing more fully the nature of the city of God. The conclusion of the book is a call to devotion. When Christ does return, holiness and industry are obligatory upon his people. Uh, He doesn't say obedience to the law, though. Uh, the prayer at the end should express the desire of all Christians, even so come Lord Jesus. That's not too bad. That's not too bad a commentary. We've had a lot worse commentaries from these people in, uh, for, regarding other chapters, uh, very universalistic trash. But I want to, uh, quote Joseph Seiss on this same point upon the historicity of John at Patmos. And this is, again, from his book, The Apocalypse, page 36. John was at the time in exile upon a lonely and desolate island, but neither seas nor alps nor ages can sever the bonds by which Christians are united to each other or to Christ their Lord. Less than a year ago, I passed that island. So he said he's personally there. It is a mere mass of barren rocks, dark in color and cheerless in form. It lies out in the open sea near the coast of western Asia Minor. It has neither trees nor rivers nor any land for cultivation except some little nooks between the ledges of rocks. There is still a dingy grotto remaining in which the aged apostle is said to have lived and in which he is said to have had this vision. A chapel covers it hung with lamps kept burning by the monks. He had been banished to this inhospitable place by the persecuting Roman government, not for crimes but for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. He was the acknowledged head of the witnesses of Jesus and the great promulgator and defender of the truth as it is in Jesus. And for his zeal and prominence in this, he was dealt with as a felon and an outlaw. The unconverted heart, and here he start, He goes into preaching here, the unconverted heart always has been, is now, and always will be at enmity with God. That's very good. Yes, the unconverted heart will be at enmity with God and hence at disagreement with God's truth and people. It cannot endure, that is, the unconverted heart, cannot endure what is not conformed to its views and tastes, and is full of malice, resentment, and revenge towards everything which holds with God and with Christ. And we're seeing that today. And if the world is at any time at peace and on good terms with the church, it is because the church itself has become debauched. Amen and it has descended to a compromise to be at one with the wicked. The nominal Christian and the formalist the world cannot hate, for they are of it and will love its own. But the Johns and Pauls must go into banishment or give their necks to the state block. Okay? Very good commentary by Joseph Seiss on the historicity and the fact that the world hates true Christianity. Okay? There's there's no doubt about this. Okay, so any uh, further comments before we actually delve into the Book of Revelation? Well, well, no. I just want to make a few definitions clear, okay? To,
1: because there's some people in the in the chat room that just don't understand certain things. Okay. The preterism and futurism. Clifton has just published a document with, with the documentation for this, right? Preterism and futurism were both invented by Jesuits in in the sixteenth and fourteenth, fifteenth, sixteenth centuries, and I think the fifteenth century to be honest with you. Okay. Now these doctrines were invented, they were contrived so that the Jesuits could deflect the fact that the reformers saw in the Revelation that all of the traits of the the beast of Revelation thirteen were found in the Roman Pope and the Catholic Church. Mm Mm-hmm. So they invented the so-called doctrines of preterism and futurism in order to lead people astray and to either claim that all this prophecy has to be projected 2,000 years from Christ into the future, and therefore that's the doctrine of futurism, where none of it took place yet, and and the other camp, the preterist camp, believes that it was all fulfilled before 70 AD, and and both, both... of those beliefs enable the church to claim to be the kingdom of God, Mm -hmm. which is a lie. The church is the second beast of Revelation 13. We will establish that in this series. However, the only proper interpretation of the Revelation, since prophecy is history written in advance, and and on our Friday night series we've shown many of the fulfillments of the prophecies, long-term prophecies, of Isaiah, of Jeremiah, of Daniel, of Ezekiel, that, that were fulfilled, I, I mean, in black and white. Daniel's four kingdoms, the, the fall of Rome. We're going to see all that again here and, and in the Revelation. And the Revelation is simply the, the, um, the sum total, basically, in, in, in synopsis of all these other prophecies. It's another snapshot of history written by God in advance, so that we can see it and, and see its fulfillment and know that God is true. Mm-hmm. Now, has it all been fulfilled? No. Has much of it been fulfilled? Yes. How could we say that? Well, we will see mm-hmm. as the series unfolds that many of these prophecies fit historic events like a glove. They have been fulfilled because the revelation was written over 1900 years ago mm-hmm. And, it being prophecy, it is history written in advance. A lot of people confuse historicists with preterists. That's foolish. Yes. It's absolutely foolish. In fact, the, the, the events of the Revelation have unfolded over the last 2,000 years, and anyone who doubts that disputes the sovereignty of Yahweh and the ability of our God to tell us what the future is going to bring us, which he claims to have in Isaiah chapter 45, by the way.
0: You're right. Yes. Okay. So yeah, the difference, beyond, and uh, the formal doctrine of preterism is that all prophecy was fulfilled by the year 70 A.D. And of course, that's that's absurd. You know. And I think we talked about an informal doctrine of preterism, which uh, in, it incorporates the idea that the millennium is after the judgment day, and we don't believe that. And so uh, people accuse us of being preterists because we don't well, agree with their. End time scenario. Okay. Well,
1: before this is over, I will prove that Bertrand Comperet and I just published all his all of his papers and his audio tapes, so that nobody could say that the meaning of the papers was what was twisted. Right. Mm-hmm. The, the audio tapes are on the same pages as, as the papers transcribed by Clifton Emighizer. Now, Clifton summarized some things because Comperet was speaking, and and we, you know, when you're publishing a paper, you want to put forth the um, the idea that's being uttered in words but spoken word is is far from perfect right mm-hmm. and compares just ad-libbing a lot of stuff off the top of his head or going by loose notes and and using um pronouns that Clifton had changed and in order to make a, a more formal and presentable paper however Clifton certainly didn't um, twist the meaning of anything. He presented the meaning as he heard it on a tape. And and you could go to compere.clistigenia.org, and now you could read the site's far from completed. I've just started work on it. Right. It, it, it needs a design yet and everything like that. And, but you could read Bertrand Comperé's Revelation series, and yet you could listen to it at the same time on the same page, and you could see that Clifton... Um, added all of the notes that I I had supplied him and some of his own notes to the ends of each of those segments and Mm -hmm. and Compray did an excellent job at expositing the historical view, which is the only correct view
0: of the unfolding of the Revelation. Right, right. Yeah, because as we'll find out, it actually begins actually a few years before John, maybe a hundred years before John, when we uh, confront the four horsemen of the apocalypse. But I don't know if we'll get to that point today. But here, let's continue now. Well, well I, I, sur- see, I I surely don't think we'll get anywhere near the four horsemen. It's not going to get to the seven churches, I don't think. Right, right. Okay, so because uh, we do have a lot of things to say about the first chapter for sure. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his servants things, his servants, Things which must shortly come to pass, okay? So not that all these things that are going to be discussed must shortly come to pass, but they will start coming to pass very soon. I well, well that,
1: I have some lengthy comments when you get oh,
0: past, verse oh, past, past verse 3. Past verse 3? Okay, so I'll just continue reading. And he sent and signified it by his angel to, ser- to his servant John, who bore record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that reads, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. Okay, so we're we're told that those of us who study this book of Revelation will be blessed for doing so. And of course, the, the Judeo-Christians don't study it. <laughs> they just listen to their, their pulpit masters and their opinions about it, and really have nothing else to say about it. Well, well, absolutely not. And and mm-hmm. and
1: uh, okay, this this John who bore witness to the word of Yahweh, right? That's past tense, and it must therefore be that John who wrote the Gospel, because that's what he's referring to—the witness to the word of Yahweh that that was demonstrated last week—and and John considered. Yahshua Christ, to be the word which became flesh, John 1.14, as it was discussed in the opening notes of this presentation. There are many witnesses from the second and third centuries of the Christian era, many of whom I cited last week, which also attest to this Apostle John's authorship of the Revelation, and and it was written in, from from after John returned from Patmos, he, he saw these visions in Patmos, and recorded his gospel, and then the Revelation Sometime between 96 and, and AD, and the um, end of the reign of the Emperor Trajan was 115 or 117 AD. Well, well, John died during that reign. It began in 98 AD, but we don't know exactly when during Trajan's reign John died. Right? It, it could, he could have died three years after he got to Ephesus from Patmos, or, or 13. It doesn't matter, right? Mm-hmm. But, but he wrote the Revelation in that period. Now, these things, you know, were to, to happen quickly in my translation. I have my translation in front of me. And, and um, literally, it means to happen quickly or with haste, yet it is evident from the revelation itself that these things were, from our worldly perspective, only to begin to happen quickly, since, as we shall see from the language of the revelation, they would take centuries to actually unfold. From the perspective of God, we find Peter saying in 1 Peter 3, 8, that one day with Yahweh is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Quickly to him is not necessarily quick in our worldly perception. But where it says, for the time is near, that doesn't doesn't indicate that the entire revelation would be fulfilled immediately. For the entire, and, and that, in and the King James, it's translated, the time is at hand, right? Mm-hmm. The entire Revelation is not one single vision, but a series of visions. Right. In fact, Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, opens with a different statement that John was to see things which, quote, must be hereafter, unquote, and are not necessarily to happen quickly or near to John's time. So a lot of people that take this Revelation chapter 1 and insist that all these things are going to happen in a very short time, they're taking it out of context with the rest of the book of Revelation.
0: Yes, yes. Okay, yeah, and uh, what I think we have to understand in addition to all that is that there is a historical progression uh, from beginning to end, but it's interrupted fairly often by different visions, especially by visions of the end times. Okay, and also but, well, the, right,
1: it's not one straight contiguous
0: right. um, progression. Where, where it's not one vision
1: that tells one linear history written in advance from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. Because we have a break at Revelation chapter 12. After Revelation 11 and the end of the second woe, it, it goes all the way back to the, to the beginning of time and, and the, the expulsion of Satan from heaven, right? And, and, and it describes the, um, the birth of Christ. And the dragon wanting to sway the child and and I know that we that that has different fulfillments, but it's definitely a reference to the birth of Christ. Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody could doubt that right. and that happened long after long before the Reformation that's explained in chapter ten as, as we shall see. Yes, the mm-hmm. opening of the little book is definitely a reference to the Reformation.
0: yes, okay. Verse four, John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Grace be to you, and peace from him which is, and which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. And at this point, since we've come across this word seven several times already, I just want to point out to people that this number seven is very significant, very prominent, not just in prophecy, but you know, throughout the entire scriptures. And for those of you who aren't aware of the work of Ivan Panin. Ivan Panin has done uh, researches of the words used in both the Hebrew and the Greek and has found that the number seven repeats itself constantly as if it were a, an invisible code into the author, uh, authorship of the scriptures. I'm going to quote from an article called Is God a Mathematician, which goes into this subject by Keith Newman. The authenticity of the Holy Bible has been attacked at regular intervals by atheists and theologians alike, but none have explained away the mathematical seal beneath its surface. It would seem the divine hand has moved to prevent counterfeiting in the pages of the Bible in a similar manner to the line that runs through paper money. Bible numerics appears to be God's watermark of authenticity. Vital research on this numeric seal was completed by a native of the world's most renowned atheistic nation in Russia. Dr. Ivan Panin was born in Russia on December 12, 1855. As a young man, he was an active nihilist and participated in plots against the Tsar and his government. He was a mathematical genius who died a Harvard scholar and a citizen of the United States in 1942. I have another guest to block here. Okay, P- Pannon was exiled from Russia. After spending a number of years studying in Germany, he went to the United States where he became an outstanding lecturer on liter- excuse me, literary criticism. Panin was known as a firm agnostic, so well known that when he discarded his agnosticism and accepted the Christian faith, the newspapers carried headlines telling of his conversion. It was in 1890 that Dr. Pannon made the discovery of the mathematical structure underlining the vocabulary of the Greek New Testament. He was casually reading the first verse of the Gospel of John in the Greek, quote, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Dr. Pannon was curious as to why the Greek word for the preceded the word God in one case and not the other. In examining the text, he became aware of a number relationship. This was the first of the discoveries that led to his conversion and uncovered the extensive numeric code. Dr. Panin found his proof in some of the oldest and most accurate manuscripts, the received Hebrew text and the Westcott and Hort text. In the original languages of the Bible, mostly Hebrew and Greek, there are no separate symbols for numbers. Letters of the alphabet are also used to indicate numbers. The numeric value of a word is the sum total of all its letters. It was a curiosity that first caused uh, Dr. Panin to begin toying with the numbers behind the text. Sequences and patterns began to emerge. These created such a stirring in the heart of the Russian that he dedicated 50 years of his life to painstakingly comb the pages of the Bible. And so just to get to uh, the number of sevens here, I'll jump down. Let's take uh, the number seven repeats over and over and over again in a hidden code behind the scriptures. Let's take the number seven as an illustration of the way the patterns work. Seven is the most prolific of the mathematical series which binds scripture together. The very first verse of the Bible, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, Genesis 1-1, contains over 30 different combinations of seven. This verse has seven Hebrew words having a total of 28 letters, which is four times seven. The numeric value of the three nouns, God, heaven, and earth, totals 777. Also tightly sealed up with sevens are the genealogy of Jesus, the account of the virgin birth, and the resurrection. Seven occurs as a number 187 times in the Bible, so it's written out as the word seven, which is 41 times seven. The phrase sevenfold occurs seven times, And 70 occurs 56 times, which is a multiple of 7 times 8. There are 21 Old Testament writers whose names appear in the Bible, 3 times 7. The numeric value of their names is divisible by 7. Of these 21, 7 are named in the New Testament, Moses, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Hosea, and Joel. The numeric values of these names is 1544 or 222 times 7. David's name is found 1134 times, which is 162 times seven, which is just uh, giving you a glimpse of how the number seven has been woven into the text. So anybody who's interested in following through on that, just um, you know, type in the name Ivan Tannen in your browser, and you will get numerous articles on the research he's done into the biblical numerics behind you know because as uh, the author said. The letters of Hebrew and Greek also double as numbers, okay? That's not true of English, and I don't think that's true of any other modern language. Is that, do you know for sure, Bill? Is that true of any other language besides Hebrew and, ex-
1: and Greek? Not that I know of. Okay. That um, each letter represented a, a corresponding number in the alphabet, and every letter was represented, I don't know that, that that's true of any other language. Mm-hmm. It's not true of Latin. Now, now the Akkadian, I, I can't tell you. I honestly can't. Okay. Akkadian and Sumerian and the more ancient languages, the, the cuneiform languages, I can't tell you.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Very good. So, verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, to him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Okay? And obviously, he was the first begotten from the dead because he defeated death and rose from the dead, verse 6, and has made us kings and priests to God and his Father. Okay? And this goes back to Exodus, when Yahweh gave the law to Moses and to the Israelites. He told us, he told our ancestors, you will be a kingdom of priests. Well, so, well that is true. However, the
1: better manuscripts that I followed have, and, and has made us a kingdom priests to God and, and His Father, right? Mm-hmm. But there is a difference in the manuscripts there. That, that's all I'm trying to point out. Yeah,
0: okay. Now, but repeating verse 6, And has made us kings and priests to God and His Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And of course, that can only be talking about it, Israelites. Right. I, I
1: have quite a few notes here.
0: The, the, uh, well, well, first to get back to the sevens, I, I know you've covered it at length
1: from Panin, and, and the messages to the seven assemblies, right? Meaning specific assemblies that were in Asia. However, there were more than seven assemblies in the Christian world at this time. However, these seven are singled out for examples, right? Mm-hmm. The number seven does resonate through scripture. We, we have a seventh day creation. We have a seven day Sabbath cycle, a seven year land Sabbath, a 49 plus one year Jubilee, right? The Jubilee follows seven, seven year periods. There were seven times of punishment for Israel, seven years of banishment for the book of seven demons cast out from Mary Magdalene, seven others from the parable of the evil demon, which had, um, yeah, that seven other demons to himself after finding his house had been tidied. The number of seven is very often found in the Revelation. The seven assemblies, the seven stars, the seven spirits, the seven plagues, the seven trumpets, yeah. seven seals, seven vials, seven horns, seven eyes of the lamb, seven heads of the beast. In, Enoch, in Enochic literature, there were seven heavens. So, so the number seven is no doubt of some significance in the creation of God and, and perhaps does represent spiritual harmony or completion. Um, He who is has to be Yahweh, right? Mm -hmm. He who is is Yahweh who manifested himself as he who was and also as he who is coming, which is Christ, right? They're one and the same. The revelation is going to prove that also beyond all doubt to anybody that really wants to pay attention to it. Um, I'd like to quote three, in, in support of that statement, I'd like to quote three passages from Isaiah. And it's um Isaiah 43.1, but now thus saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee, I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. And Isaiah 44.6, thus saith Yahweh the king of Israel and his redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last, and beside me there is no God. We will see several assertions by Christ in the Revelation to be the Alpha and the Omega, or literally the first and the last. And and he says it both ways, right? Mm -hmm. But it's also, Yahweh said said the same thing in Isaiah. They both can't be the first and the last. They both have to be one and the same. One is Yahweh the Father, and the other one, Yahshua the Son, is Yahweh in the body of a man, come as a man. Isaiah 44, 6 says, Thus says Yahweh the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last, and beside me there is no god. Isaiah sixty sixteen, and thou shalt know that I Yahweh am thy saviour and thy redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. Mm-hmm. Okay. But now that I have a series of quotes, you know, he comes in the clouds, and and um, what well, we see, we see that here. I'm sorry, I'm. Trying to get back to the text, I'm thrown
0: off a little bit. Okay, want me to quote? I'm sorry, that's,
1: that's verse seven. We haven't right. gotten to verse
0: seven yet. Yeah, right. haven't gotten Okay, want me to quote it then? Before yeah, you... yes, yes, verse seven, okay.
1: because I have a whole series of, of quotes on that. I would, I would like to read them because it's very important that we see the Revelation as a, a sum. It's a sum prophecy
0: of all the prophecies in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Okay, and well, in this very first phrase, behold, he comes with clouds. And a lot of people want to take you know, the other examples of the word cloud is where the rapturist believes that uh, you know the people the, the, those being raptured are taking up into literal clouds. But here, these are not literal clouds. These must be the saints that come with him, right? Well, <laughs> well yes, and, and Paul uses the word to
1: to be to reference clouds of people.
0: Yes, yes, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him, even so. Amen. Because there's going to be a ter- time of tremendous tribulation. And certainly the sinners of this world are going to, are going to be wailing. And even those of us, you know, there's something uh, called uh, awe, fear and awe. You know, when, when angels appeared to the scribes and to the prophets, they trembled in fear, even though that those angels did not mean them any harm, right? And so many of us are going to experience that kind of trembling and fear, even though no harm is intended to us. But a lot of us are going to mess our pants, as we found last, Jeremiah said last night, right? Okay, verse seven for you. But
1: well, well, he, yeah, you know, he comes with clouds, and, and that's true. And I'm going to read some some scripture that that also says he comes from or in the clouds, right? Yes. But that that doesn't mean that there's a rapture, and that doesn't mean that um that that Paul is talking about clouds in the sky in two Thessalonians, right? And, and I'm sorry, in one Thessalonians, I think, in, in chapter 5 or chapter 6. The And we've discussed that at length. Paul's talking about great clouds of witnesses right. as he uses the word in the book of Hebrews, right? Mm-hmm. And, and we see in the book of Enoch, and be, this is Enoch 1, chapter 1, verse 9, and Jude quotes this, and I won't quote the, um, the section from Jude, but Jude quotes this in verses 14 and 15. Enoch says, and behold, he comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to destroy the ungodly. And, and and that's basically what Jude quotes also, and and Jude elaborates on it a little. Maybe he had a better copy of Enoch. But, you know, those ten thousands of his holy ones could very well be clouds, right? Mm-hmm. Now, now John... 1937 quote and again another writing says they shall look at he whom they have pierced. That's a, um, a quote of Zechariah 1210 and I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplications and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. Now we can take that literally but that word hoytines is, is what the Greek says, and hoitines means anyone who pierced him, all, all right? And, and in my translation, it says, even whoever, which is what hoitines literally means, even whoever had pierced him. Mm-hmm. It, doesn't, it, it doesn't reference um, anyone specific, and, and I take that to mean that it's not necessarily talking about the Jews, of course, or the Roman soldiers. Rather, it's talking about all of us who reject Christ, For when we reject Christ, we uphold his crucifixion. Mm -hmm. And Paul makes that very clear in Hebrews um, chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, where he says that it is impossible... That those once being enlightened, tasting the heavenly gift and becoming partakers of the Holy Spirit and tasting of the good word of of Yahweh and the powers of the coming of the age, yet falling away to restore again in repentance, upholding the crucifixion among themselves and making an example of the son of Yahweh, this is exactly what many of our own people have done people who have been Christians for centuries, embracing humanism and hedonism and all of the doctrines of the neo-Canaanites, the Antichrist Jews, who have taken over our society by following the enemies of Christ, that they, they may as well pierce him too. They've mm-hmm. fallen away. That's and, right. and they uphold his crucifixion. And, and they may as well have pierced him also. And, and surely they have. And, and um, I, I believe that's who he's talking about at his return. Even all of those the, those Israelites who stopped him rather than the literal Roman
0: soldier who, who was the one who pierced him oh, right. yeah, with, well, with the spear 2,000 years ago, right? Well, yeah, because it wasn't just the Pharisees that caused him to be pierced. They had duped a lot of uh, Judahites into participating in that. And I, I'm totally convinced that modern Christians, the Judeo-Christian of the world today, who believe that the Jews are God's chosen people – when he comes back to kick their ass, they're gonna they're gonna hate him for doing that, right? And they will pierce him all over again
1: absolutely and and I have one more statement about this verse, and that statement is just a quote from daniel seven thirteen to fourteen, and I saw in the night visions. And behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before them. Now that, um, and, and, and this is definitely talking about Christ, verse 14 says, and there was given him dominion and glory in a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, meaning that Satan's not going to take it over after a thousand years, right? Which shall not pass away, and his kingdom which shall not be destroyed. And I'll probably cite that verse again when we get to Revelation chapter 20 and put that into a historical perspective. However, here my point is that the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, and those clouds, again, could mean his children, his people. his right. the, the, the ten thousands of his saints would be the clouds of heaven.
0: Yes, yes. Uh, and since the, our discussion of clouds has... Begun a, a long series of comments about the rapture. Uh, let us just point out, and uh, I think Commander was correct, there will be a rapture of the wicked. <laughs> okay? That rapture, and the scripture is very clear on saying that the wicked will be raptured first. They will be raptured by death, right? And there will be. Well, however
1: they're taken away, they'll be gone. They'll be bundled right. and tossed into fire. Exactly. Uh, I mean, that's.
0: Yes. Now, we can, although the word rapture is not in Scripture, we can say there is a rapture of the just, of the saints as well, but it doesn't mean they're going to be taken up into heaven while the wicked are raptured, and then they'll come back. The Scriptures don't say that. That's simply the restoration when our people get their new bodies and they're changed in the twinkling of an eye into a new being. Okay, the, One,
1: 1 Corinthians chapter
0: 15. Right. That's the real rapture. Okay? It has nothing to do with physically being shipped up to the clouds. Okay? Well, well, I, well, right, yeah. that,
1: final, that, final, um, that, that final act by Yahweh is what establishes his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Yes. yes. That's the end game. Mm-hmm. So, so if all the good people are taken away, how could the kingdom be established That's on earth? right.
0: That's right. Very good. Okay. Verse 8. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending says Yahweh, or says Yahshua, which is and which was and which is to come the Almighty." I jam- I, I have, okay.
1: um, I, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, well, go
0: ahead. No. Yeah, I, well, go
1: ahead. I, I have three more passages from to read to, okay. from Isaiah to read in relation to this, and, and let me say first that Isaiah is the um, second most quoted book of of Old Testament scripture by Christ, I believe, next to Deuteronomy, and Psalms is third, right? right? Mm -hmm. And so, Yahshua, constantly in his ministry, um, referenced the the prophecy of Isaiah. Here, Christ again asserts that he is one and the same as Yahweh God himself. And and these passages, the first one is 41.4, where Isaiah says, who has wrought and done it? Calling the generations from the beginning, I, Yahweh, the first and the last, I am he. Mm-hmm. And four six says, Thus saith Yahweh, king of Israel, and his redeemer, Yahweh of hosts. So, so we see the multiple facets of Yahweh, right? And even in the words of Isaiah, I am the first and the last, and beside me there is no God. Isaiah 48.12, Hearken unto me, O Jacob and Israel, my call. So so we see that we're still his call, right? Mm-hmm. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. Here he's saying that he is the Alpha Rule. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God in the King James, right? He who is, Yahweh is eternal, and who was, meaning he was Jesus Christ walking this earth, and who is coming, meaning he is the returning Christ.
0: Yes. Okay, verse 9, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation, and we're often told that we should rejoice in tribulation, not shun it, because that is what refines us in the fire. And in the kingdom and the patience of Jesus Christ was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, And heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what you see, write in a book, and send it to the seven churches, which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, and to Pergamos, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And, of course, now here we're we're talking about the literal congregations of these churches, and I'd like to quote Seiss again on this score because uh, he's talking about this salutation and that it is, of course, to uh, literal churches so called. But here is what he has to say They are addressed singly as the churches which are in Asia, as such the church in Ephesus, the church in Smyrna, the church in Pergamos, etc. The ecclesiastical unit is therefore to be reckoned from the local assembly under one minister, and such helpers as may be grouped around him in the acknowledgement and the administration of the commands of Christ. These several units, or any number of them, may lawfully join together in other and more general organizations and administrations, but never so as to ignore or supersede the proper churchly character of each without, with, excuse me, without regard to the rest. The original order of the church, as the apostles founded it, and as they addressed and left it, is congregational. And every system which obliterates that order, that is the congregation, insofar departs from what God and his inspired servants have authorized and ordained. John knew of no churches, but the individual congregations. However, they might voluntarily come together for mutual counsel and general edification, so he totally backs up what you and I have been teaching over the course of this entire series that we've done on the New Testament, that the Roman Catholic Church, all the denominations who have separated themselves from the congregation of Israel are illegitimate churches. Well,
1: well, absolutely. Yeah, you know, I, I got to make an aside and and okay. say that there's that there's a couple of trolls in the chat room sometimes that accuse me of being a papist, right. and, and that's just incredible, because they use the term that that one of them takes the title for himself of bishop. He's right. the papist. <laughs> yeah, you don't okay. see me use any any titles whatsoever, mm-hmm. and, and and I can claim one, and and he uses the term papist. He's the papist. He uses the term right. bishop. Well. um <laughs> Yeah, I have a, a paper on my website, Misconceptions Concerning Paul and the Church. Okay. Paul left behind a string of absolutely independent local congregations that chose their own leaders. Right. They elected their own leaders. There's no room in Christianity for a hegemonical um mm-hmm. Catholic church. <laughs> Catholic church, right? The, the Catholic Church, even though it started out, most of, of the assemblies that it originally consisted of, and many of their writers started out with perfectly good intentions, and even though the first church, the first once it first organized and solidified its power in the empire, it made some good decisions, mm-hmm. it also made many bad decisions, yeah. and eventually it became a tyranny. And, and by the 1500s, it absolutely, under the De Medici's and the Borgias and, and the Jews that infiltrated and usurped Roman Catholicism, even though it was tyrannical to some degree before that, it really started oppressing our people then. Yes, yes. And, and it, it it killed a 100 million Christians, perhaps. Right. And, and there's, there's no excusing that. Yes. But But the church was not all bad at its founding, but... Its founding was based. It was based on the, the Roman pagan hierarchy. It wasn't yeah. um, Christian at all right. when it was founded. Because yeah. Paul, the, the, the local assemblies that Paul and the other apostles left behind were all autonomous. They decided their own fate. They decided their own interpretations of the Scripture. And, and, and that's the way Yahweh wanted it. And we see that in these seven assemblies, in these seven congregations. Yeah. And, and he lauded them all for what they did good, and, and he admonished them all for what they did bad. And, mm-hmm. and we'll see that next week
2: yeah
1: i have some comments on um 9 and 10 and 11. okay first and 11 we're, and, and this i'm pointing this out now so that we're not surprised by it later right in in verse 11 it says i am alpha and omega the first and the last and those words don't belong in verse 11. those words are from the commentary by andreas of Caesarea. there was a commentary by one andreas of Caesarea, in in which was made probably around the ninth century a.d and that commentary gave us, it, it, a lot of his comments were written into the text, and, and that became um, part of the text in, in a minority of the manuscripts of the Coined Greek tradition. The majority of the manuscripts of the Coined Greek tradition do not have the comments of the Andreas of Caesarea. However, it was one of his manuscripts which gave us the King James Version of the Revelation. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a lot of interpolations in it, and some of those interpolations are very important. This one really isn't important because it, it does. The text is in verse eight, right? It does belong in verse eight, but it doesn't belong in verse eleven. And that's—I just want to point it out because I'll probably be, be mentioning Andreas of Caesarea quite often in this series and the many interpolations of his into the Revelation, which ended up in the King James version of the Bible. In a few places, it is very important. And Revelation chapter 20, verse 5, is one of those places. Right. This is this what I'm saying is all readily verifiable by anyone who obtains the NA 27 and Nestle Land Novum Testamentum Grecae, 27th edition. It's all in there. Now, um, verse 9 I, John, your brother and fellow companion in the tribulation. Mm hmm. It it highlights and kingdom. John is highlighting the fact that the purpose of this life is for trial, for us to to be proven, tested by God of our worthiness for his kingdom. Therefore, John calls himself a partner in both the tribulation and in the kingdom. This life is not for pleasure or joy as those enemies of our God have led our people to believe. The easier we comply with his will, the less we may endure trial. As Joshua himself said, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. I'd like to quote three scriptures, and I'll only quote parts of them in, in relation to that. One is James 1.12, blessed is a man who endures trial, because being approved he shall receive the crown of life. James is telling us what this life is for. Peter, 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 3 through 9, I'll only quote verse 6, in which you must rejoice if for a short time now it is necessary to be pained by various trials in order that the test of your faith, much more valuable than gold, which is destroyed, even being tested by fire, would be found in praise and honor and dignity at the revelation of Yahshua Christ. Hebrews 12:7. Um, I'm sorry, Hebrews twelve seven and 8. Paul tells us that if we're without discipline, then we're bastards and not sons, that, that we're all to be disciplined by God. And, and Paul asks, well, what is a son whom a father does not discipline? Yes. So John here, said, well, he's fellow companion in the kingdom, but we have to understand the tribulation first, right? That we're not here for the kingdom. That's to come when Yahshua returns. A lot of people in Christian identity, they want to institute the kingdom now on their own, on, on, at their own power. They're going to fail miserably. Only Yahshua Christ can, can bring us the kingdom.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very good. Okay, so uh, verse, yes, I, I completed verse 11, verse 12. And I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. Okay, there's that number seven again. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, oh, and uh, I think we brought this up last time that the Jews have a nine, uh, 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 the stem candlestick. All right. I. A nine you hate a, it, but I got some lengthy notes about this this passage. <laughs> okay, <laughs> <laughs>
1: go ahead. <laughs> well, well, the um, oh, okay, I'll, I'll go with that. Yeah, you know, the seven-branch candlestick, you're right. The Jews use a nine-branch candlestick. They, they added a few branches at their own whim, right? Well,
0: Yeah, one for Esau and one for Ashkenaz. <laughs> yeah,
1: right. <laughs> or the Khazare. or right. it don't matter.
0: Yeah. Ishmael. The, the,
1: uh, they should have 12 or 14 branches, probably. One for the, uh, one for the Moors, right? The, the seven-branch candlestick is first described in Exodus chapter 25. And and I'll just repeat verse 37 where it says, And now shalt make the seven lamps thereof, and they shall light the lamps thereof, that they may give light over against it. This is an Israelite symbol, as the Revelation is replete with Israelite symbols. Not only is an understanding of the Old Testament a prerequisite to understanding this symbol, these symbols, but this is also a full indication that the message of the Revelation concerns those same people with which the Old Testament concerned itself. Mm-hmm. And the Jews who are not Israel, in the Revelation, they only get a passing and, and negative mention. And, and as, as they are truly those who have forever been opposed to God. I, I would like to talk about Zechariah chapter 4 here. In Zechariah chapter 4, we see a vision of the building of the temple by Zerubbabel associated with seven candlesticks, and two olive trees. And, and there's, a cl- there's a very clear picture of that drawn in Zechariah, and, and where the seven candlesticks and two olive trees are, are described. And I'll mention the olive trees again from Zechariah chapter 4 when we get to Revelation chapter 11. Mm-hmm. But let me say that the name, and, and this is a clear reference to Zechariah chapter 4, and, and, and those seven candlesticks at the building of the temple. And the name Zerubbabel, there's an underlying meaning here that's very profound. The name Zerubbabel actually means sown in Babylon. And I would like to think that from Genesis chapter 11, where men perceived that they must build a tower to reach unto heaven, Mm -hmm. the idea that man must build edifices in which their gods could dwell was also sown in ancient Babylon. Mm Mm-hmm. There are references throughout the earliest Sumerian inscriptions where particular temples or precincts are referred to as the houses of particular gods. And Romish Catholicism has basically adopted adopted and adapted Mm -hmm. the same pagan idea since its inception. Right. Right. But Yahshua Christ has shown us. That our bodies are the true temples of the spirit of Yahweh, our God, who cannot dwell in a house built with hands. And and that spirit was put into our bodies in Genesis 2-7, right, when Adam was created. And, And this was a major theme of Paul's later teachings. But it's also alluded to in Isaiah, like in Isaiah 52.11, where it talks about ye that bear the vessels of Yahweh. It's talking about our bodies and spirits. It's not talking about people walking around with cups and and saucers, right? Mm -hmm. Yahshua here has taken this vision of the seven lampstands, which is connected to the building of the second temple in and Zerubbabel in in Zechariah chapter 4. And, and he's taken this vision in order to show us that he is indeed the true temple of Yahweh, the spirit of the living God in the body of a man, as Paul says of Yahshua, that in him dwells all the fullness of the divinity bodily. And that's Colossians 2.9. And that's what this is drawing a picture of. When he says that he's the one with the seven candlesticks or, or the one amidst the seven candlesticks, he's saying that he's the one with the temple. That, that Zerubbabel, yeah, you know, that vision was first used of in Zechariah four. There's a clear, um, that, there's a clear connection there.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, very good, very good. Okay, and uh, we're continuing with verse 13, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like to the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about by the breasts with a golden girdle. Okay, and I guess uh, that would be. Uh, you know, a warrior, either a warrior or a priestly garb. Verse 14, his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. So uh, obviously he's a white man. <laughs> Verse 15, and his feet like undefined brass. And, of course, when brass gets heated up, it looks white, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shines in his strength. And this last uh, could even be a reference back to Moses, because after he received the Ten Commandments from Yahweh and he appeared to the Israelites, his face was shining like the sun, right? So, But we have a couple of images here in verse 16 that uh, obviously the seven stars, and the seven stars will be identified as the angels of the seven churches, and out of his mouth went a two-edged sword. Would this not be a reference to the fact that uh, when people uh, are hypocrites, their lies come back to cut them, cut them asunder, right? And so those who teach lies in the name of God, in the name of the Bible, in the name of Yahshua, Better be careful what they teach, because it's going to come back and cut them asunder. And his countenance was at the, as the sun shines in his strength. Verse 17, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying to me, fear not, I am the first and the last. There's that dread that John actually felt this dread, fear of this uh, awesome presence before him. Verse 18, I am he that lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Okay. So he opens the keys and, and lets people in who deserve to go in there. He opens the, the gates of hell. Verse 19. Well, I think I, I have a few notes here. I think that
1: the keys of hell and death refer to the control over them, right? Okay, yeah. I'd like to read Daniel seven nine, you know, because in, in verse fourteen here John describes the manner in which Joshua appeared to him in his vision, and in verse thirteen he initially calls him one like a son of man. There's no article there, okay? He's one like a son of man. The phrase "son of man" was used by Yahweh himself to address the prophets. He consistently called Daniel a son of man. He called Ezekiel many times a son of man. And so every son of Adam is a son of man. John is telling us that, except for the fascinating description of him, with, with the white hair and the burning, you know, countenance, that that he looks very much like we do. And and, and like a man does. And, and we see in many places in Scripture that he is indeed Yahweh God, but that he is also one of us, and Daniel describes him using the very same term at Daniel seven thirteen, which is cited here earlier, where, where he says, "I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the son of man came with the clouds of heaven, and came to the ancient of days, and and they brought bef- him near before him." In Daniel seven nine, he is described very much like John describes him here in in, in this chapter. Quote. I beheld till thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool, meaning as white as wool, and, and his throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels burning as fire. So so we see very, um, talking about the same exact thing, we see very similar language in Daniel. In mm-hmm. um, reference to verse 17, Christ being Yahweh, our God, manifested as one of his own sons, he again asserts himself to be the first and the last of all things. And, and that could only be Yahweh, mm-hmm. he who lives and was dead. The the um Well, well you're not at verse 20 yet, so I'll no, stop, no. stop there.
0: All right, very good. I quit at verse 18, verse 19. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven gold, golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks, which you saw, are the seven churches. Now, of course, this word church is still ecclesia, correct? And it should actually be congregation. Well, well the word church doesn't belong in the Bible at all. Not even once?
1: We we know not even once. The word church should never be in the Bible. Okay. The word church should never be in Scripture. The, the word has a totally different meaning than the Greek word. Okay. The, the word church is a made-up medieval word. Yeah. The, the, it, it's from, it's a German word, right, church, Kurs, in, in the yeah. form that we know Kurs. it. It's kursa. Yeah. It, it's from German. And, and that came from the Greek word kuriakos, which is the genitive form of kurios, which means literally of the Lord, mm-hmm. Okay. But that's a made up word. It's not yes. a translation of the Greek. The Greek word ecclesia simply means an assembly of people who are called together. Yes. yes. They have to be called together. It's not a chance assembly right. of people. Right. It's a called assembly of people. Yes. The ecclesia in Athenian and in, in Athens, Ecclesia was a political term. Okay? The ecclesia were the citizens of the city who had voting rights, who typically attended all of the councils, and and it was basically every male um, descendant over 20 years old of the original founding families of Athens, mm-hmm. okay? okay? Because you couldn't simply move to Athens and become a citizen. You had to be a, a male descendant of one of the original founding families and come of age. Right. And then you, you would be admitted to the ecclesia and, and you would gain a role in the democracy of Athens. Yeah. You would have a say in the fate of the city. And, and, it, 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 and, and it's a noble-sounding um, form of government, but it boiled down to mob rule and the power of persuasion. <laughs> right. Exactly. The of Athens. There's no doubt. Yeah. But that was the Ecclesia. And and the Ecclesia in the eyes of Yahweh are those called out from his children from the 12 tribes of Israel. Right. Period. That's yeah. it. Period. They were an assembly, and, and they're considered the Ecclesia whether or not they happen to be gathered together at any particular time. Right. They're still referred to in the Book of Acts several times as the ecclesia, which is dispersed throughout all of uh, all of the area. That's right. They, they're, they're still the ecclesia, and not just any person who happens to be in any particular area could be a member of the ecclesia. You have to be one of the people called by Yahweh, which is the the people of Judah and Israel who understand the gospel and hear his voice, then you're a member of the Ecclesia. When you see a white Christian walking down the block, as Clifton has written, you you see a member of the Ecclesia. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. But no building and no organization could ever be substituted for that concept in the Bible, in in the scripture of the Ecclesia.
0: right. right. And the denominational world of Judeo-Christianity has gone to great lengths to insert this word church in the Bible so as to claim that they are the intended recipient of this language when they are not. Well, while well, it was
1: part of the instructions, yet, you know, the early English translations of the scripture had the word congregation. Mm-hmm, that's right. However, King James ordered the, the translators of his authorized version to replace that with the word
0: church. That's right.
1: To uphold the authority, to, to create a false pretense in order to uphold the, the non-Christian state right. authority, basically, of the Anglican church.
0: Right, right. Well, the pilgrims and the Puritans then are in exactly, the, we're in the exact same position that we in Christian identity are in today. They rejected the churchianity world of, it, of their day, right? They rejected the Anglican Church, those who lived in England, and uh, the, the Germans rejected the Roman Catholic Church in Europe, right? And all the real Christians rejected those uh, church organizations who were not, uh, although they, some of them may have been white, they were not the congregation spoken of here in Scripture, and certainly any multiracial church can never be accepted because the entire bible is talking about anglo-saxon israel and no other people so uh, the true king priest of israel has to be a caucasian israelite when he reaches the age of 30 no other person qualifies as a priest in christianity period no other person qualifies certainly john and jesus didn't go to some denominational a seminary, right, and, and were educated in, in their version of churchianity, right? They became priests by heredity,
1: by heredity. Well, well absolutely. There, there's no there are when you look at the early the anti-Nicene fathers. I don't even like to call them anti-Nicene fathers, yeah. right? Because that that means that they they belong to, that that gives people the idea they belong to the Catholic Church and they don't. Right. Yeah. That means that the. It, it The phrase refers Before. to the early Christian bishops, yeah. legitimate Christian bishops, who were elected by their assemblies right? in, in the pre-Roman Christian churches, right? These were legitimate right. Christian bishops chosen by their assemblies to be bishops, not by a pope, mm-hmm. because none of these assemblies were under the authority of Rome. That's right. There was no Christian assembly under the authority of the bishop of Rome, until the time of Justinian and in, in in 530 yeah. in, in at least 530 AD, right? right. That's when the decrees right. were made to to solidify the power of the Bishop of Rome over the rest of the Christian assemblies. Right. That's when that happened, yeah. right? And he, and he All even, of the Christian assemblies and, and um, in and if you read Eusebius's History of the Church and and Eusebius was writing around the time of Constantine Eusebius explains that in the fourth century there were certain bishops of Rome who thought that they should have a, get authority over the other other bishoprics, and Eusebius said that the other bishoprics were told were telling that that um, bishop of Rome to buzz off. Yeah, yeah, you know they were like get out of here. Right, well, what are you talking about? That's not the Bible. And and it's not. Mm-hmm. So, Eusebius
0: actually records that in, in more eloquent language than I'm repeating. Right, it, right, right. And he's the historian of the Catholic Church, right? Well, well yes, <laughs> he is. Well, well they claim him to that. be
1: a historian, but even in 330, even in the time of, of Constantine, there's no official Roman Catholic Church. That's right. All Constantine did was he made Christianity a tolerated religion because it had been persecuted for practically 300 years up to his time. Right, right. Now, now he officially declared it a tolerated religion. There were pagan emperors after the time of Constantine. Mm -hmm. There was a mixture of Christian and pagan emperors for two hundred years, almost after the yeah, time of Constantine, right. where one would be pagan and one would be a Christian, <laughs> but Christianity was tolerated; it was no longer persecuted. Right. Now, in that period of time, I consider um, all of the all of the bishops of, of Christian assemblies until the time of Constantine to be legitimate, and this is why. Mm-hmm. Because you suck your neck out to be a Christian bishop. Before the time of Constantine, right, you risked your life. That's right. But from the time of Constantine, you no longer risked risk your life. And it was during that period that a lot of the pagan priests and pagan temples began to take their signs down that said Jupiter and Mars, right, and put up signs that said <laughs> Saint Peter and Saint Bartholomew, right. 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 And, and and they they took they changed their clothes and they became Christian priests. Right. However. Before the time of the Council of Nicaea, before the time of Eusebius and Constantine, you will not find the phrase Christian priest in any of the early church writers, of the early Christian bishops. You won't find the phrase Christian priest in Irenaeus, in Justin Martyr, in Tertullian, in any of those
0: writings. It
1: doesn't exist until the period of the Council of Nicaea.
0: Right, right. And to answer a question in the chat room, Constantine did not become a Christian until he was on his deathbed, and I, I verified this with a Serbian nun. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that he did not officially convert to Christianity until he was on his deathbed. So he was his entire motivation in uh, accepting. Accepting Christianity was it was for him it was a political move, okay, to uh, institute peace between the pagans and the Christians. His mother, however, was a very devout Christian. Okay, but he was a very practical politician, who did not convert until his deathbed. Okay, now and at the same time, nor is there any evidence that Peter was ever a bishop of Rome, as you just pointed out. Had he declared himself bishop of Rome, he would have been executed.
1: The, the only I have found evidence when, when I researched the, um, the the program last week, Irenaeus does put Peter in Rome. That okay. doesn't mean Irenaeus is correct, okay. but he does put Peter in Rome. I would look for okay. two or three witnesses, right? right? I haven't found that yet. Yes. But um, that that's that we have I, Irenaeus. I can assure said that
0: Peter was in Rome. Okay. But I, but no, no one ever said that uh, Peter was the bishop of Rome. Okay. No, absolutely not. He may have gone because... there. Uh, my understanding, he uh, he made it as far as one of the southern suburbs, <laughs> right? But he was never bishop of Rome. He would have been executed had he declared himself bishop of Rome. And there's no well, well, evidence. Paul
1: wrote. Paul wrote to independent assemblies in Rome and, and never mentioned a, a bishop.
0: Right. Right. It would have been death. It would have been suicide for somebody to be a bishop in Rome at that time. So the Catholic Church's claim that the Catholic Church and the succession of popes was begun by Peter in Rome is just absolute hogwash. It's, uh, well,
1: well, they really had they had assembly leaders, and, and they, they met in people's houses. Right. There were several assemblies in Rome, not to one. yes, Not to one central church. There, there was no bishop of Rome at that time. That's right. There, was... and, um, there were actually bishops of Rome after the death of Peter and Paul, that were considered to be bishops of Rome. Mm-hmm. And the first, I think it's the first 14 or the first 16 bishops of Rome, it can be shown from the early modernologies, were all moderate. Yes.
0: Yes. By, by the Catholics. <laughs> well, well, right. Yeah, the because Catholic.
1: once Christianity
0: became
1: tolerated by the empire, that's when the political um, animals came out of the woodwork and started to infiltrate it and subvert it for their own uses. Right. Right. And, right. And what you have, even at the Council of Nicaea, you already have great divisions among Christians. They have a hard time getting together and agreeing on anything. We've been the same way ever since. Mm-hmm. And, and, and except for that period of Roman tyrannical rule, that, that that was the only time everybody agreed, and that agreement was only public. It was never private, right? Right. right. So, However, you know the, the um, even under the the Catholic Church, it wasn't always a tyranny in every regard. Right. For instance, if you read Bede, Bede is a an eighth century Christian priest, Catholic priest in Britain, okay. right? And he wrote that they were translating the scripture. Into the vernacular of the time, the Anglo-Saxon tongue, openly they were making translations of it for the common people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And 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 he gave no indication that there was a tyranny of, of beliefs or a concealment of the the meaning of the scriptures in in um in eighth century Britain. Okay. However, yeah, in in, Britain. Britain, in time we do know that. the the Catholic Church eventually precluded the Scripture from the hands of the people, that they barred the people from having it. Yes, that's true, but that didn't happen until much later. Right, right.
0: Well, uh, according to the records that I researched, the first pope that actually declared himself to be a pope was, I think, Innocence III in 607 A.D. And, of course, that title means Bishop of Bishops, And even Gregory the Great, the one who uh, paid off the Germans, okay, or or did he pay off uh, Attila the Hun, I forget which one he paid off, okay, he did not accept the title bishop of bishops. He actually refused to take authority over the other bishoprics, such as Alexandria and these other churches that we're talking about here. Okay, he actually refused to assume authority, and he, he declared I have no authority over them he actually stated that so any catholic who says that gregory the great was a pope is a liar well, well there's certainly no biblical
1: authority for any pope that's right period there isn't period every local congregation of right. christians is supposed to choose their own leaders and, and 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 even those congregations are only put together voluntarily right you're only a member of a con- of a local congregation if you want to be. Mhm. That's, right. that's I mean, right. There's no compulsion in scripture. there's no um need to be a member of any congregation. <laughs>
0: that's right, that's right. And it's, in fact it's very exclusive. Paul tells us that any lawbreaker should be put out of the congregation. So we're not to to be going around converting anybody and everybody, even if they're even if they're white. Okay, they have to be believers. They have to understand what the gospel is all about, and otherwise they can't be a member of the congregation. Well,
1: well right, and and what people miss is that the, the Christians, the early Christians of the first few centuries of Christianity, they relied on the government for nothing. Right. They paid their taxes <laughs> and rely on or count from the government for nothing. Mm-hmm. The Christian assembly was all about, the, the daily governance of the local community. Right. Self government. So when you put somebody out of the community, they were out of the community. They weren't just out of church on Sunday. They, they mm-hmm. weren't
0: just prohibited. That they had
1: no business with anybody in the community. Right. And, and
0: that's the way it should be. That's right. Yeah. There's no lawbreakers have no business in the congregation. Right. And as you said, Paul set up individual, independent congregations. He did not set up a denominal church.
1: Right. The independent congregations chose their own leaders by election, Mm -hmm. and and that's proven in the the Greek language of the Book of Acts and and Paul's letters, and the leaders were the servants to the assembly. They weren't
0: masters over the assembly. Right. Right. Now, isn't that exactly the principle of local government we have here in America? That has well, been well, it's the way local
1: government started out. It's not what it became un- under the um, the B system that we exist in now, but it's certainly right. the way it started out. That's the aldermen were the aldermen of the community, that's right? Right.
0: Right. And that, that's an Anglo-Saxon word, alderman.
1: Mm-hmm. It
0: means elder, <laughs> the elder man, right? <laughs> well, well, right. And they governed the
1: community.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: They then, made up the city councils. That that uh, the
1: council of the aldermen, right? That right.
0: governed the affairs of the community. And that's true republicanism. It's all based on local rule, with the local communities selecting their own representatives.
1: Well, well, right, because power, as Thomas Jefferson saw it and wrote it in the Declaration of Independence, comes from the consent of the governed.
0: Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. So America is fulfilling, in its original design, is fulfilling exactly the type of our elder Representation that the early Christians had. I mean, isn't America the most, the closest thing to that type of arrangement ever? Well,
1: well yes, it, it actually is. It, it's the, the closest um, practice of Christianity on a large scale. Right. right. Yes. The, the original institution of this nation. It actually is. But it didn't end up like that. It, it was um, imposed on and usurped from the top down, just like the, assemb- the Christian assemblies of Europe mm-hmm. in the Middle Ages were absconded and imposed on and usurped from the top down. Right. That right. bishops were, were actually harassed in, into um, surrendering that their authority to the Pope.
0: Right, right. Okay, well, I see we only have about five minutes left, so it's not worth going into Chapter 2. But uh, it reminds me of the concept of uh, one of these churches, I think actually two of these churches, had uh, allowed the Nicolaitanes to creep in to their assemblies. Now, aren't these Nicolaitanes exactly those people who want to rule from the top down rather than have local representatives? Isn't that what the, what the sin is referring to?
1: Well, well, right, and and I know that we, we've we had – um
0: differences of,
1: of opinion about the nicolaitans but mm-hmm. i hope to um elucidate next week yeah. that so did the early church writers sure. have differences of opinions Well, while they all had the same opinion about john of on patmos right, right. they had different opinions about the nicolaitans and and that, that and i'll i'll elucidate them next week okay. however the word Nicolaitan basically means a conqueror from the greek word nikos mm-hmm. over the people right. from the Greek word laos, which was the word that we get the English word laity from. Right, right. right. The the laity is the people, and yes. and and a Nicolaitan is a people conqueror. Yeah. And, and yes, the um the the uh, all right. I have a synopsis from my compare notes just in case we got to chapter two tonight. Okay. It's only a short paragraph. The Ephesians left their true love, their first love, which was Saint Paul. Paul founded the congregation or assembly at Ephesus. Okay. That's the love that they had to leave, right? right? Those of Pergamos and Syatira are criticized for fornication. Those of Sardis were imperfect in their deeds because they had already defiled their garments, right? Okay. Those of Laodicea were lukewarm and sought material wealth. Right. 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 Those of Smyrna, Smyrna means ointment used for anointing. They are the anointed, right? Mm -hmm. They and those of Philadelphia, which means brotherly love, which means no no fornication, right? Right. (laughs) They were not criticized, right? Right. So I think that that the Christians who embrace their anointing and love their brethren won't be criticized by God. Right. And, and only those of Ephesus yes. and Pergamus okay. were haters of the Nicolaitans or the people conquerors, right. which I see as top-down, tyrannical, organized
0: religion. Right, right. So Or
1: well, pap- okay. Go ahead. papistry, right? Papistry.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what you're getting into is the uh, analysis of the symbolic language here. Obviously, we're talking about seven literal churches. Because we're told in chapter one that this, it, you know, he wrote epistles to these literal churches. Okay. Well, well, right, but these literal,
1: these names that there were hundreds of of assemblies established by this right. time. Yes. Right. I, I mean, that there were all. I, I could name ten in Paul that right. aren't even mentioned here. Right. Yeah. And, so, and where are the Colossians? Where where yeah, you know right. where are the Definitely. Thessalonians? Yes. So so it's there's no doubt there were many more assemblies by this time, but. These seven were chosen for a reason. Mm-hmm. I
0: believe that part of that reason is in their names. Right, and no doubt. The, yeah. yes. Because in their names they represent all the other churches, so-called, all the other congregations that participate in this particular vice, or, or maybe, maybe they don't participate in any vice, as the church in Philadelphia didn't. Okay, so, uh, But certainly it, these are descriptive words. They're literal words. They're descriptive words. And uh, next uh, next Saturday I'll uh, be uh, running through Howard B. Rand's chronological analysis of these words, okay, and these churches. And so we'll have at least two symbolic interpretations of these literal churches, okay? So looking very much forward to that. Uh, we got through Chapter 1, folks, <laughs> okay? And uh, next Saturday night we'll continue with the book of Revelation chapter two, we'll start talking about the churches in symbolism, as we have already discussed the churches as literal, actual, physical churches. And uh, tomorrow my guest will be Greg Howard, and we're gonna be continuing our series on the Testaments of the 12 Patriarchs. I think it's nationally tomorrow. And so Bill, looking forward again next Friday to uh, the continuation of Jeremiah next Saturday, Revelation. And uh, thank you for joining me again this evening. Thank you all for listening. Praise Yahweh. Praise Yahweh. Yahweh bless, everybody, and good night.